All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. I say this week's Sunday Chops, there are two this week. I know, we are generous beyond words, right? Let's talk about the other Chops first. That is a full version of what you might have heard this week, a small bit of the interview Mickey did with the brilliant Penny Windsor about her book Tender, which is about being a carer. And it's absolutely fascinating. i Really enjoyed it, and I think I might have to add her book to the ever-growing pile of books that's at the side of my bed. When you finish this, Chops, you should definitely go and listen to that. This, Chops, is one of the reasons the pile by the side of my bed has got so big, because I have been reading an absolutely whopper of a book by Dr Helen McCarthy, Double Lives, which is a modern history of working motherhood, and it is absolutely cracking, and I say that as someone who isn't a working mother. In fact, none of us until quite recently have been working mothers. You might have seen our good news this week. But Jen, yay, has had her little baby, lovely, lovely, squishy Lyra, who I can't wait to pick up and just, oh, bite her little cheeks. Don't tell Jen I said that. I don't think people like the idea of people biting their babies. But that's what I want to do. And just to be clear, Jen did not have a baby, so we would understand working motherhood. That would have been an extraordinary commitment to researching a topic. But I just keep saying it because it's lovely news, eh? So my interview with Helen is coming up now. I'd just like to tell you that just as a piece of evidence about how wild and wonderful working motherhood is, 
Helen's Zoom background for the entirety of it had been created by her daughter and Helen was unable to remove it. So that made me smile a lot. And I hope the interview interests you. Have a good rest of your Sunday. Until next week. Hi, Hannah here. I'm joined on the phone by Dr Helen McCarthy, Fellow and Lecturer in Modern British History at St John's College, Cambridge, and author of an excellent new book, Double Lives, A History of Working Motherhood. Thanks for joining us, Helen. It's great to be here. Before we start on your book, we have to stop and talk about the current situation because, you tell me, because you're the expert, can we term it the biggest childcare crisis in living memory? I think we could, but I also think in many ways it's magnifying and amplifying much longer term problems within Britain's creaking childcare system. In a sense, the fact that the schools are closed and nurseries are closed throws parents back onto their own resources even more acutely than they have really over the 20th century when there's never been sufficient, adequate, affordable, high-quality childcare provision for working parents who've, who've needed it. I am not a mother. Our listeners will know that, but just so that you do. When this first happened and all of my friends were either furloughed or were told to work from home, I thought, this has a possibility, this has a sense of possibility that this could change things for the better. This could be our Second World War for our generation, as in we could come out of this and women would be able to argue to employers that there was no good reason that they couldn't work at home if it was more convenient for them. On the other hand, I've watched as time's gone along and anecdotally or things that I've seen on social media has suggested to me that in a lot of ways, it's actually in a lot of households reinforced ideas about whose job childcare is. Which one of those is right or are they both right at the same time? Well, I'm going to be a pathetic historian and say that it's too soon to tell <laughs> and we'll have to see the passage of time and, and how things pan out. But I do think specifically the point about homeworking is interesting because actually working at home is a key theme in my book. And actually it ended up becoming a much more prominent part of the story that I was telling about the history of working motherhood than I had expected. I mean, lots of women, I mean, hundreds of thousands of women, certainly in the early 20th century and right you know, into the present day, have performed wage work at home. And of course, it's often been presented to women as the flexible alternative, as the option which allows them to attend to their domestic duties, uh, to have the flexibility that they need to fit in childcare. But I think in a way, the lockdown that we're currently living through gives us a kind of false impression of, of working at home, because actually working at home with children underfoot is a very, very different proposition from working at home with your children at school or nursery or with childminder sort of around the corner. And you can, you know, get on with your work and then you can casually stroll around the corner to pick them up. That's true flexibility, I think. And that could be a very attractive option for working parents into the future. And I think you're right that actually lots of employers and workplaces, which perhaps had been culturally resistant to home working, in previous years before the crisis and perhaps did perpetuate this culture of presenteeism you know you must be at your desk you must be there first thing in the morning and late into the night you know I think if that is swept away by the Covid crisis then that could be a positive legacy for the future but as I say only if the childcare issue is is sorted in the interim. Getting on to your book which I have to say I haven't finished but that is because it's so interesting that every so often I read something and then I have to stare into the middle distance for ages and contemplate. Can I ask you, when you sat down to write it, A, it's a huge topic, but B, it's quite a, a sensitive topic. It's a topic that's loaded with guilt and judgment. 
did it daunt you to sit down and tackle it? It did. And I think from the outset, I was very, very anxious that I shouldn't write a book which essentially was a history of women like me. So, you know, well-educated white women pursuing professional careers. I really wanted to capture the diversity of the waged work that mothers have done over the period. And I didn't want to start from the premise that paid employment is always emancipatory for mothers in all places and at all times. I'm very interested in feminist arguments about why mothers caring work in the home ought to be better valued and how those sorts of arguments related to arguments about paid work as liberating for mothers. So I you know, tried to get some nuance there and I really did try to capture the diversity. And I think in, in a way, I got around the kind of sensitivity, I think, by asking actually some fairly straightforward empirical questions about, you know, what did mothers do? What kinds of jobs did they do? Where did they do them? What were their working conditions like? How did they sort out childcare? What did government think about it? What did social reformers think about it? How did feminists argue about it? And in a sense, because sort of keeping close to those fairly clear basic questions about what were their lives like and how did they change over time and trying to capture the diversity. I think that was my way into, as you say, a topic which in contemporary discourse can be, you know, can be quite loaded. A couple of years ago, I did some reading about Mary Jones, nicknamed Mother Jones, the same woman that the magazine in America is named after. And when I was first reading about her, I thought, oh, she's terrific because she was a, a she was an Irish woman who went over to America as an immigrant late part of the 19th century and became a trade unionist and very involved in getting children out of the workplace and also in trying to improve working conditions and working pay. All of which I'm thinking, hooray, this she sounds amazing. But then we get to further along in my reading and it turns out that one of the reasons that she wanted men to be better paid was so that women didn't have to work so they could stay at home with their children and that really you know I apply my 21st century values to that and my my sort of hairs on my neck stand up a bit and I think oh you know I don't have a problem with problematic people I know not everyone's perfect (laughs) but then reading your book and reading stories of women who'd left newborns at home to work 12 hours at the mill while the milk poured out of them I feel like I should reevaluate my view of Mary Jones because I feel in many ways that she had a point so what we're doing is we're comparing apples and oranges, I think, comparing modern motherhood to, to that time, aren't we? I think that's right. And actually what you described, that was the position of most female trade unionists uh, in Britain in the early 20th century. So their assumption was that unmarried women, single women would earn wages and would support themselves and support the household economy. And then when they married, they had other work to do and that they should be supported in that work either by a family wage earned by their husbands who could support them or, as some feminists argued, by family allowances, the endowment of motherhood by the state. And this was a debate within feminism in the early 20th century. And you're right that if you actually... You know, if you try to reconstruct the conditions in many workplaces, if you try to actually put yourself in the shoes of the working class housewife who maybe has four, five, six kids, who's pregnant, you know, every year or two, who's having to find fuel to keep the home warm, who's trying to put meals on the table, who has to go to the shops every day because this is before supermarkets and Mm. Ocado deliveries, Uh, you know, you get a real sense of the texture 
of women's everyday lives and just how much labor there was to do yeah. in the home. I mean, having said that, I still feel that we should bring a critical eye to these early 20th century debates and think about you know, why it is that these early 20th century trade unionists were so willing to endorse or accommodate themselves to a vision of sexual order, if you like, of the, the kind of the sexual division of labor in the home, which was very much served the interests of men and made it very difficult, actually, for women to fight for equal pay yeah. in the labor markets of, of, of the early 20th century. Because what you discovered is that bleak, though that may have sounded, I mean, drudgery that it might have sounded to to do all of your work at home and then go off and do that. Many women actually really enjoyed it. Yes, I, I really wanted to try and read some of the sources against the grain when I was looking at the reports of factory inspectors and social reformers who investigated women's work in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, often coming from the position of uh, moral outrage that married women's wage earning was was uh, necessary and I wanted to sort of I mean it's actually fairly rare that we hear the voices of working class working mothers speaking to us directly in those kinds of reports and parliamentary inquiries you're very much sort of getting it through the lens of the middle class reformers and, and parliamentarians but I tried to listen in and tune in to some of the testimonies and it's very very fascinating the way that many women did express a sense of pride and skill, a sense of the independence that wage earning gave them, a sense of the, the sociability and friendship that the workplace offered, even when they're earning very low wages, often in, in quite poor conditions. And I sort of wanted to capture that and try to make that part of the story, because I think it is very easy just to sort of say, well, of course, it must have been awful. And of course, no wonder mothers wanted to get out of the mm. workplace as soon as they could. Because actually, you know, wage earning had other meanings, even for very poor women. Paid work could have a whole host of meanings for them. In a form of comparison, many friends of mine have told me, especially when they went back after when they first had their child and they had a young child, that essentially they worked Monday to Thursday to pay somebody else to look after their child and they earned their money on, on Friday, leading to the question of why do you do it? Well, you do it because you want to do it, because you enjoy the job and you have friends and you have a life outside of the house. Earlier I said we're comparing apples and oranges. Did you find some experiences that were universal for mothers, regardless? I'm not sure that I would say that women themselves were articulating a shared experience. I think looking back as historians, we can see that there were sort of gendered dynamics at work in the labour market, which affected women across social classes in similar ways. The, the fact that marriage meant economic dependence. I mean, that's true across social classes. I mean, then that's true across regions and across, you know, occupational groups. And I think, you know, I think women and I mean, certainly if you if you look at some of the, the middle class feminists who were observing women's industrial work and clearly felt a real sense of social distance between themselves as respectable ladies and these labouring women who had, you know, 
of very different social origins. Nonetheless, I think there is this, there was some sense of, of common ground in the way that women's dependence, women's economic dependence on male breadwinners, that was a shared experience. Obviously, we tend to look at the Second World War as the sort of primary driving change for women. It, it, it enabled, or the First World War to a certain degree as well. Uh, that's what brought us the vote. In your book, there's a lot of other causes as well, one of which was immigration. One of the issues there is women that have actually left the country in order to work abroad and send money home. Could you tell me a little bit more about that, the experience that those women had? So you mean migrant women who yeah. came to work in Britain it's really important not to um, generalise or homogenise these groups because women actually migrated to Britain from many different parts of of the world and uh, had a sort of a range of of motives and motivations and experiences. But yes, you're right. So I think one motivation that comes through in a lot of the sources around women who are are coming from places like Jamaica or Trinidad and later on from um, uh, South Asia is a real uh, sense of aspiration, a sense of wanting to improve the lot of of their family, to give their children better opportunities. And that might actually mean leaving them with grandparents or extended kin for the time being and migrating to Britain in order to work and to save, perhaps even to uh, do some kind of course of education, earn qualifications, and then bring their children over one of the experiences of, of, of migrant women that I sort of wanted to, to capture in the book is how they actually felt a sense of shock and disillusionment when they sort of encountered this rather hostile, you know, often overtly racist mm-hmm. uh, white society that did not recognise them as equal citizens. And of course, Commonwealth citizens were equal citizens. They, they were black Britons. They were not yeah. outsiders or newcomers or dark strangers, as one sociologist um, referred to them. So I sort of wanted to kind of capture that. And also, I mean, in some ways, they also had very similar aspirations to white British mothers who were increasingly going back to work in the 1950s and 60s, doing part-time jobs, trying to earn extra money to sort of lift the family's standard of living and, and had sort of very strong aspirations for their children in terms of education and social mobility. I don't... No, a single woman within my, when I grew up, within my family, within my, so I grew up 1970s, 1980s, all of them worked. The only person that didn't work was my grandmother, who was retired at that point. She had worked in a bar during the war, but what she did was something called homeworking, which isn't a particularly well-known sort of part of work. And specifically what she did was something she always referred to as the feathers, which was making, I mean, my mum's explained it to me because my mum said basically my nan made all the kids sit in a line and she basically did it even quicker then and they did it like a mini sort of factory production line until the smell of the glue got too strong and then they all had to go outside and play for a bit, which was stick a variety of feathers in a position which was then used to go on hats or brooches or something. And that was, I mean... It it made me question how many hats and things with feathers on were sold that it kept my nan in work for as long as she did. But that's that was very common, wasn't it? Women basically doing what you might even describe as sort of factory manual work, but in the house. Yes, it was absolutely integral to um, late Victorian and Edwardian manufacturing industry, particularly in these sorts of small, smaller kind of light consumer 
industries of the kind that you're describing. I mean, clothing was um, a major employer of, of home workers. Uh, women who would often have a sewing machine at home, they would very rarely actually make a full a full item. They'd be given things to do like sewing the, the, the buttonholes or trimming the trousers. And this would be paid by the piece and it would often be very, very low wages. And, and this sort of caused a big agitation in the very early 20th century. There were many middle-class reformers, socialists, trade unionists who wanted to see this kind of waged piecework in the home swept away or at least heavily regulated but it's very difficult to quantify exactly how much home working was going on I mean it was very strongly associated with women and particularly with older married women who were trying to find some way of earning some extra shillings that they could um, add to the pot for their families and it's certainly it's very interesting because your grandmother she was presumably doing this in the 50s in the 50s yeah yeah she did it when my mom was younger the 50s and probably into the 60s maybe even Yeah, because I think there's a sort of a general sense that after the First World War, homeworking diminished and there was a trend towards moving that kind of work into the factory, creating assembly lines, creating sort of um, sort of rationalising industry and heavily regulating that kind of casual wage earning. But then there was a resurgence of of homeworking from the 70s. And this is partly to do with changes in the global economy. It's to do with sort of new kinds of supply chains. But it's clear that it never went away. It's clear that this kind of manual homeworking was going on and was a, a resource for for women uh, who needed to earn money at home right through the twentieth century. And of course, it's you know it's still very much part of the part of the low wage economy today. And actually, I mean, you, you would be able to tell me if I'm wrong, but I went on Etsy to buy some face masks because I didn't want to get face masks from any kind of medical place. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of women just running, but the means of production is in their hands now rather than it's being shipped over to them. But So there are still a lot of women making money on their sewing machines at home, but they're making it directly yeah. for themselves, aren't they? Yeah, and that's a really important distinction, actually, because I think what, you know, what made homeworking potentially so exploitative in earlier times was the way in which it was um, a form of employment where women had very little control over what they were what they were being given to make, um, the rates that they were being paid, the pace at which the work was coming through. And they were very much at the mercy of the employer or of the um, the subcontractor who was giving them money. And it's and that, that's what makes it giving them work rather. And that's what makes it distinctive from more forms of, of self-employment that you might see as being more, giving women more opportunity yeah. and more control. Was there anything that you discovered while you were, studying this and writing this or researching it sorry and writing it uh, that surprised you one of the earlier chapters in the book I looked at working motherhood amongst middle class women sort of rather well-to-do respectable uh, middle or upper class women in the late 19th century and because I was curious to know just how much paid work middle class women were able to do after marriage because I think one one associates the uh, this period as a period in which you know, for middle class women, they they are essentially leisured when they get married. It's an era of marriage bars where, you know, if you do have any kind of professional ambition, you have to choose between getting married um, or pursuing it. But I was quite struck by actually how many opportunities there were for middle class women if they were clever, if they were smart, if they were persistent 
to continue with some form of paid employment after marriage. So one of the women that I, I had no idea, actually, before researching this book, that Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, who's sort of one of the kind of pioneer female doctors in, in, in history, uh, was actually a mother. And she had three children after she got married and she continued practicing medicine, becoming a sort of very prominent I interviewed someone about the Edinburgh Seven who oh, yeah. all went to be doctors. And I made, during the interview, I made the classic assumption that they all ended up spinsters and childless. And I was corrected because, yes, most of them married and had children as well. And it is interesting. Why was it possible for medics to, to do this? And I think it's something to do with being self-employed, actually, being able to set up your own consulting rooms and to take private patients and to earn a living that way. Because, I mean, there's a trend through the 20th century of working mothers in medicine becoming GPs, because actually that's a way in which they can have some control over their working hours. Whereas it's much, much more difficult to get a job in, a, in hospital medicine and to continue, you know, continue that career through having children. So I think there's something there about, about medicine providing opportunities essentially for, for self-employment. But I was also sort of interested in, in writing as an area which uh, women could pursue after marriage. And there, I think this is partly to do with the way that writing really in the earlier 19th century was a sort of feminine art. It was recognised as a sort of a legitimate activity for women, particularly if they confined themselves to particular kinds of genres like novels or children's stories. And so that, you know, that really interested me, that idea of, of professional writing as something which was compatible with motherhood. Yeah, oh, that is the dream, professional writing, I think, for a lot of people still now. One last question, and I, um, you could answer this either from personal experience, because you are a mother, or from everything you've learned writing this book. Is there a right way to be a working mother? No. <laughs> Thanks, Helen. <laughs> I didn't want the book to be about that. I didn't want the book to be in any way casting any kind of judgment on how different Groups of working mothers have combined wage earning and looking after their children over time. And, and like I said, I think this comes back to this point about, about the starting premise for the book. You know, I didn't want it to be a sort of self-help guide. I didn't want it to be here, you know, here's sort of lessons from history. I really wanted to be, it to be, you know, lots of, you know, throughout, throughout this period, hundreds of thousands of mothers, now millions of mothers, have earned wages for their families. What did they do? How did they do it? How were they treated? How did policymakers treat them? What was said about them? What did they think about their own lives? How did all of these things change over time? And I just sort of wanted to tell that tell that story really, rather than you know try to provide it, try to sort of provide any kind of moralized lesson about how to do it. Brilliant. So double lives in all good bookshops. Absolutely, yes, yes. It is. <laughs> and where can people find and out? online and online and online because bookshops are closed. Yeah, good um, point. <laughs> where can people find out more about you and your other work you do? Are you on Twitter? Do you have a website? I am on Twitter. My handle is at historian Helen, and I also have a have a web page on the University of Cambridge Faculty of History website, and where you can find out more about my research. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Helen. This has been really interesting lovely to have a two-way conversation standard issue for all women